0: better way to do this let me show you a better way
1: hi folks this is Jack spearo with another edition of the survival podcast As always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher or even if they don't today is monday october 22nd 2012. And this is episode 1003 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, and on Monday it's a feedback show. So these are all emails with questions, comments, articles, whatever, that you've sent to me with something like article for Jack, suggestion for Jack, comment for Jack, question for Jack. You get it two words, and actually three words, and two of them should be for Jack, and put one word in front of it, and you'll get into the queue with the other 400 people a day that send the email, and maybe we'll get you up on the air if we can. Uh, before we get into your email and feedback, though, today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, JM Bullion. You know, when it came time to make a change with a sponsor that was in the silver and gold world, I thought to myself, it just doesn't make sense that we wouldn't have a sponsor from that world. So I went out to find the best pricing I could. Uh, With a company that's been around, but yet still small, around a long time, but yet still small and family-owned, where you could talk to the owner if you wanted to. And I found JM Bullion. I found a small family-owned company, and I found a company that you could talk to the owner, and I found a company that beat the big boys at their prices, that beats out companies like AppMex and Monix. That's JM Bullion. Uh, Check them out today at jmbullion.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, whenever I talk about our ammo supplier, I always say that a gun without ammo is an expensive club. Well, a gun with ammo but an operator that's not trained well isn't much better. If I could have someone uh, defending my six and they could have kind of a beat-up old mosin the rifle but they were a re- well-trained person, or it could have somebody out there that didn't know what they were doing with a uh, fully loaded AR with a bunch of ammo. I think I'd take the trained guy with the old Mosin Nagant. The training and the operator is what makes the weapon. Or in the uh, words of Sun Tzu, uh, a uh, a true warrior has no favorite weapon, and I I agree with that. And the way you do that is by training, training. Training, then training some more, and then when you think you've trained enough, go find someone to help you go to another level with professional training. And you can do that with Frank Sharp Jr. and Fortress Defense Consultants. Check them out today. And remember, if you can't get up to where Frank is, he can come to you. Why don't you guys? I mean, it would be a great way to put together some TSP events. Just start talking, you know, on the regional boards and put together a training. Call Frank up, get him out there, get a bunch of TSPers together, or if you want to get people into prepping, just talk to all the guys at work. Say, hey, wouldn't it be cool to take a tactical shotgun course or a tactical rifle course or a tactical handgun course but, and maybe have some medical training go along with it? Wouldn't that be great? Why don't we get together and do that? What a great way to build community uh, and a great way to support one of our sponsors at the same time. So check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Next up, check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions, I'll leave it at that today. Cuz I want to talk about MSB for a second and if you usually skip this part, don't skip this part. Don't skip because I got something going on this week. I got a sale. If you would like to get your first year of Member Support Brigade for only 40 bucks, uh then you can do that right now and I was going to run that through tomorrow, but I am now going to run that um through the entire week, through the end of business on Friday. So till midnight Friday Central Standard Time, uh, and you can join by mail if you want to. You just write the uh, the code on the form. The code is October 12, and the number is, it's one two. So October one two, all lowercase, uh, all uh, all one word, no spaces. October. Twelve October one two first year for forty bucks. The reason I decided to do that, and I just want to share this on the air because not everybody reads the blog, is I was doing an update to let you guys know how much we've added to the MSB, and I want to let everybody know that existing members, people considering it, what have you, just in the last ninety days. So I said that in 2013, I was going to really ramp up the member support brigade with some really good stuff. Here's what we've done. I brought Terroir Seeds on, which has some of the most unique, awesome heirloom seeds, 10% discount on all purchases, and you can use the 10% discount to buy their discount membership and then get 20% off all purchases, or just take the 10% if you're only going to buy a few packets here and there. 180 TAC, 10% off the 180 TAC stove. Okay. Harvest eating. 15% off all store items from Chef Keith Snow. Uh, the seasonings alone it probably could make a big dent out of your MSB and they're the best stuff I've ever eaten and I was saying to my wife last night when I was cooking and I was using a steak seasoning and saying you know what we got to order some more of the barbecue seasoning I love having sponsors that I can say this is what I would buy whether they were a sponsor or not. That's definitely the case there. Old Grouch Military Surplus it's so hard to find actual military surplus stores instead of people with a bunch of Chinese knockoffs and crap like that calling themselves surplus Old Grouch is the real deal. Tempo percent off everything he has he has there and he just got in a shipment of real nato jerry cans not the fake cheap knockoffs the real ones how about 10% off those and anything else there Doom and Bloom Survival Medical Supplies, the best collection of medical supplies and, and shit-at-the-fan needs uh, from a medical prepping perspective you will ever find. Um, you can get 10% off everything there, and medical stuff can get expensive, so that could pay for your membership alone. JM Bullion, uh, one of our new sponsors, the silver people that we're talking about today. Discounts on all orders, $300 or more, and the bigger discount if you're ordering $1,000 or more. Sounds like a big order, but with silver and gold, that's not really that big of an order now, is it? Backwoods Home Magazine, we've had them giving away a free book. Now they're giving 20% off a new subscription. Uh, Nodak Arms, 5% off all their custom-loaded ammo, and they will reload your brass for you at a significant savings. If you provide the brass, they do the reloading. They'll do 10% off reloading of your own brass next level training 20% off all their self-diagnostic training gear like the cert if you bought if you're gonna buy a cert uh, it's a training handgun uh, the discount on the cert will pay for your membership that's just what we've added in the last ninety days to the MSB there's almost forty vendors there now there's over hundred fifty dollars worth of free ebooks, and now you can get a discount on your first year of membership for only forty bucks if you pay by mail um, just write it on the, on the, on the, uh, form. If you pay with silver by mail, we give you a couple extra months. I'll put a link to the article I did on this on the blog today in the show notes, uh, so you can get the code and all. But again, the code is just October 12th. I want to say one more thing before we kind of pass on this today about MSB. Occasionally I get people And if you don't contact me, it's very hard for me to help you with this. They try to complete their payment with PayPal, and they just can't get it done. For one reason or another, it won't go through. And I think most likely it's people that don't really have a PayPal account set up, and they're just trying to use PayPal to pay with a credit card without setting up a PayPal account. I think that's the biggest problem because it won't allow renewing subscriptions. If you are that person, there's a lot of things we can do. You can direct, you can just send me money directly in PayPal. You can use the form. If you need any help, if that's you and you're trying to get your payment completed, the system sends out an email automatically that says all this stuff the next day if you don't complete payment. But please contact me and I or Dorothy will help you set up your account. Trust me, it's in our best interest to do so. And I can't, you know, do everybody manually. It's too much work. But helping the people that the system just breaks down for, that's our job. We'll do it. With that, please consider joining the MSB and let's get into the main topic of today's show. I wanted to start out with something fun. This comes in from, uh, The Permaculture Life. And, uh, I don't know if I'm gonna get his forum name right. I think it's Reth Hoff. Uh, Reth of whatever on the forum. Uh, I am, uh, Rethoff on the forum and an MSP member and I talk about TSP and you a lot. When I talk about Jack, even the kids usually know who that is. This event should go in You're a TSP Follower When Files. Here's what happened. My daughter was playing Pirates of the Caribbean on the Wii. She couldn't find a character to do what she wanted, and she was frustrated. Then she said, if I could just get Captain Jack Spirigo, I could do it instead of Sparrow. Hope it adds some humor to your day. Thanks for your work with TSP. to helped motivate us toward being in more control of our survival needs. That's, that's awesome. I, I love getting little things like that. So if that ever comes up, folks uh something with your kids or something let me know because it does make my day. I don't share them all on the air but uh I do once in a while cuz I just think it's kind of neat uh that it, in some families TSP that is that integrated. So let's go on to something maybe a little less fun uh but uh, a little more serious. Um, here's one from Jim in Tennessee. Jim says, what's the best way to get information about local unrest, civil breakdown, so you know when to bug out? This is the way you do a question if you want to get it answered, folks, because when I read that, I knew his question. Then he has an expanded question. Uh, like a spider having a huge web, it's helpful to have feelers out and around the community we live in. I, like many listeners, live in a city where I must work, but I have a great bug out location ready for that day. My concern is having the right feedback from my community to know when to bug out. What source should you use to develop critical feedback? Waiting only on the national news is undependable. A police scanner might help. When do you know it's time to pull the trigger and go? My wife and I would love your thoughts on this. Okay, Jim, it's a great question, and it's unfortunately one of those questions where I just can't say, do these three things, and when the you know slot machine lines up, lemon, 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 bug out. It's, it's never that cut and dry. But there is some things you can do. One is a great idea that you already put pointed out there, which is keeping an eye on the police scanner. Um, That's something. But here's the reality. We only bug out when, you know, when do we bug out? Now, I'm asking a rhetorical question over the blank space at the end to get everybody's mind going, when do you bug out? And the answer is you bug out whenever bugging out will increase your odds of survival. Not because it's a cool thing to do, not because just we have a bug out location, we might as well use it. So it's it's whenever we're actually going to be better off long term by bugging out. Which means either the shit has hit the fan globally. Dogs and cats are getting married and, you know, whatever it is that, like, it's over and it's over for a while. And it's over everywhere. And that we do have to pay attention to national news for. And in many situations, that national breakdown will slowly kind of precipitate its way across the country. So unless you live in D.C. or Chicago or New York City, you're probably going to have a lag between that type of an eruption there and everywhere. Okay, So that's where we do have to pay attention to nationals. The other thing are things that are acutely local that can cause something going crazy. Like, for instance... LA during the Rodney King riots that was very very localized and that you know all you can do is pay attention to what's going on so I think the reality is most times when something blows up it doesn't happen overnight now if you're clueless and you're walking down the street like everybody was fine and then everybody went crazy is how it seems but there's there's always a catalyst to it so I think that the biggest thing that we need to be able to do to determine when to bug out and when not to bug out is to trust our gut instinct And to pay attention to everything that's going on. Like your analogy about a spider with a web and lots of feelers out in all different directions is a good idea. Have a high level of situational awareness. Pay attention to what's going on. Pay attention to the national the local news. Do pay attention to things like police scanners and things like that. And have everything set so that bugging out doesn't actually take much effort. It's probably a good idea someday, since you have this plan, to just say, you know what we're going to do, and, and this is not going to be anywhere near as, as tight as it would be for you if you had to do it on the fly, but you'll learn just as much anyway. Next Saturday, uh, we're going to bug out for Saturday and Sunday. We're just going to go out to the bug out location, hang out for a couple hours, enjoy ourselves, test our preps. And you have way more time to plan than you would probably have in a typical bug out. So, But do it like it's real. You'll find all the holes. You'll get more confident. And this will do two things. When you feel you need to do it, you'll be more willing to pull the trigger because you'll be confident in your ability to do that. When you really don't think you need to, but you're just a little bit apprehensive, you're not likely to jump the gun because you know the drill when the drill comes and you know how to do it. The key with bugging out of there are two things that we have to worry about getting in the way of our ability to do it. The first is general rioting and carrying on and people blowing stuff up and burning stuff down and all. People going ape shit. We can mitigate that a great degree by having multiple avenues of egress out of our facility. So we should all have three routes to three different destinations uh, and so it means your bug out location, you should have at least three routes planned out of your place to there. Because this is part of where people kind of blow up the, you know, without rule of law scenarios and all, and people rioting and burning every street down and, you know, smashing everything and going crazy. It, it happens. It's happened throughout history. But it doesn't happen everywhere. People, see, when people are doing that, you gotta ask why are they doing it? They're pissed. They're pissed about something. That's when it comes down to they're pissed. They're angry, they're enraged, and they're acting in a mob mentality. So do you go do that, you know, in you know, west suburbs of Seboyganville? It's not that it can't happen, it's just not likely because it's just not the place for it. And, And it almost even when it spreads out in the neighborhoods and all eventually, it never starts there. It always starts in these highly urbanized areas because that's frankly where there's large numbers of people that have very little to lose, right? That's where people that live in the streets are. That's where people that walk everywhere they go they don't own a car are. That's where people that don't have a job that really is a meaningful career are. That's generally where they're in, not that they're not everywhere else too, but that's where they're in large concentrations. They're almost always the people that start a lot of times they are catapulted into this action through manipulators at a higher level. Somebody with a political agenda or something like that will harness the rage of these people. It's always there, right? So the rage of this group of people that starts this shit, understand this, they're already that way. They're just looking for an excuse or a way that they think they can get away with it or a catalyst that sets them off. So when a catalyst appears and they're just kind of really simmering, a lot of times that's where you know the invisible hand, so to speak, will come in and push them and cause them to act so that they can get something politically done. So that's one we have to worry about. And again, we can mitigate that through having multiple avenues of egress as long as we don't live in ground zero of our town or city. If we live in the suburbs... You gotta have a plan to get out, and if you like live on the south side of a city and your bug out locations to the north of it, you better have a plan of egress that goes around. Right? The second thing we have to worry about is when that kind of thing's gone on for a long time. The government comes in and says no more. They bring out the sound cannons, they bring out the freaking water cannons, the rubber bullets, the clubs, the gas, and they start busting heads and cracking skulls and putting boots on throats. And that's both good and bad. The good is the people that are actually burning building downs and shit, that's what they need. The bad is they always spread out to the people that aren't doing it. The problem with when that occurs is often that they may lock the area down under martial law. If you have people rioting and all, to get out, all you gotta do is avoid the riots. When you get martial law, they pretty much close everything down and say you're not going anywhere. So you gotta make sure that you're jumping before that occurs. And it's ideal that you jump before riots and things like that occur. Let me put it to you this way. If I was living in L.A. with a big court decision like Rodney King coming up, I would have had a planned vacation to the bug out. I just would have. I just said, you know what, we're just going to plan it. The, the verdict's coming out with this. It could go either way. People will accept it. But I, 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 this just doesn't look good for our city. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to decide that like a day before this thing is, is supposed to come to a head, we're going to all be sitting out camping cooking freaking hot dogs and, and marshmallows. And I'm not going to worry about the end of the world as we know it for that type of an acute localized event. I'm just going to freaking get out of the way, and I'm going to wait until whatever needs to be done is done. And then I'm, you know, when are you coming back to work, Jack? When the city's safe for my kids? You know, that's when I'll be back. Well, you know, Bob showed up for work today. Well, that's Bob's. Pro- Bob doesn't care about his kids, I guess but i you know i'm not I'm not coming in until this is done that's the approach I would take so hopefully that's a good answer because it can never be you do it when x y z occurs other than any time it looks like your safety, security, and life is more secure by bugging out that's when you do it that's that's always the cut and dry catalyst for to go or to stay okay um you know this next article. It comes in from someone. is on a subject we talk a lot about on Mondays just because it's the type of articles it comes in. It comes from John. And John says, uh, this is on uh, Tom Cogburn, who is a uh, Republican from Oklahoma, a member of the House. Um, and he basically is saying that there's a two- to five-year target uh, between now and the real financial crisis, which I find very interesting because I was saying as early as this spring, And then the Fed made apparent their willingness to do anything and everything to prolong things with QE2, QE3, Operation Twist, QE Infinity, QE4 Infinity, whatever. And and basically I said that when they started doing this, it it puts in all of this fuel to kind of keep the fire burning for, for longer and that it could be anywhere from a year and a half to five years at this point they've kicked the can. And... This timeline seems to add up, so uh, I, I obviously find that interesting. But let me read a little bit to you uh, of this interview, and there's a, there's an entire um, uh, video of the interview, and it's on reason, uh, Reason.com, reason TV. And uh, but I wanna I wanna just read a little bit of this to you. Reason. Let's get right to it. When is the fiscal time bomb going to go off? Tom Cogburn. It's anywhere from two to five years from now, depending on what happens in Europe and what happens in the world economy. But there will be a point in time where people lose confidence in our ability to repay our debts. Reason. But so far, bond rates are low, which would signal that people are lending us money are okay with us running trillions and trillions of dollars of debt. Cogburn. Bond interest rates are low, and that's normal when you have debt deleveraging. If you read long-term economic history, you'll see that it's not uncommon. Reasons, so looking at low interest rates is missing the point. Cogburn, it's missing two important points. One is that we're the best-looking horse in the glue factory. The second point is that just because we have low interest rates doesn't mean they'll always be low. When you've printed $3.6 trillion worth of money, right now it's printed, but it's not in the economy. It's sitting in the bank assets listings, on the Federal Reserve asset listings. What happens when that money starts moving? When the velocity of that money starts moving, you're going to see 15 to 18% inflation. So the debt bomb is two things. Short-term is deflationary, long-term is high-inflationary. And that's the real meaning to anybody that's living in our country. If you're my age or less, and you've socked away something for your retirement, the purchasing value of that goes away. Reason, let's talk a little bit about how we got here. Since about 1950, the federal government on average has pulled in about 18% of GDP as revenue. But it's been spending closer to 20%. Cogburn. Twenty one percent. This guy knows his numbers. like, And this is where this guy, even though I have some differences with him, I really uh, respect his honesty here. Reason. What's the role of the Republican Party under George Bush and with the Republican Congress in pulling apart expenditures from revenue? Cogburn. Both parties have equally participated in abandoning the limited role of the federal government. You lay on top of that the careerism of politicians who want to do things so they can get reelected, and you all you have is a catalyst, which makes that even go faster. Our problems today are twofold. We spent money we didn't have on things we don't, absolu- don't absolutely need, which refers back to the enumerated powers listed in Article 1, section eight of the Constitution talk a little bit more about that for some reason cogburn well we spent 2 trillion on education at the federal level with no improvement there's no parameter you can find where we're better off job training programs we spent 18 billion to almost 19 billion a year the government accountability office says that they all of them do exactly the same thing except 3 why do why do we have some 90-some teacher training programs? Where in the world do we get the authority to have teacher training programs run by the federal government? We spend on average several billion dollars a year on those, and you can just go through the list. Reason. Do you think when people see the long list of programs and how much we're spending on them and how generally useless or even unknown they are, are people going to respond, we got to get rid of these, or are they going to say, i got to get in that gravy train? Cogburn. I believe the vast majority of Americans have common sense. It's only Washington that doesn't have common sense. The reason things don't change is that you keep sending the same people here, and the same people are good people, but they're also politicians. Reason, do you think legally prescribed term limits is the way to go for that? Cogburn, no. I think the way for it is for individuals to say, I will not vote for you unless you put a certified statement out saying I'm limiting my term. And you can read the rest of the interview or listen to it if you want to. I want to talk about, though, the, the concept of this timeline here, and I want to mess you with something else. I also got an email uh, from a guy that they had on Russia Today. Uh, I can't find the email now or the the video now, but it was some idiot who was basically stating that there's no reason to ever fear that the U.S. will default on its debt because the United States prints and issues its own currency. Therefore, it's impossible for us to default on our debt because we can always just print more money. And we never have to worry about inflation until, guess what, we have... 100% employment. As long as we don't have 100% employment and 100% resource utilization. In other words, people have so much money that they're able to buy everything, use everything, etc. Until we hit that, we can just print money at will and not worry about it. And this gets coupled with another fact. And this is the big fact that people try to use to rebut the danger of going off the fiscal cliff. That a huge portion of the money that we owe in our national debt, we don't owe to China. We don't owe to the British, we don't owe to the Swiss, we don't owe to Europe, we owe it to ourselves, we owe ourselves money. What's the problem? Well, how do we owe it to ourselves? Okay, let me explain to you how we owe it to ourselves. Every year, Americans all across this country bust our freaking ass, right? And when they say 47% don't pay taxes, it's a much lower number than that, because if you've got a job, you're paying a tax, it's called social freaking security taxes, and your employer is matching it, and that comes out to be about 12% of your wages by the time you add in the employer match. Now, the Ashclown Obama cut taxes by cutting that tax while that that program's already in danger of default, which, you know, I'm all for tax cuts, but if you're going to cut tax, you've got to cut spending to go along with it. So that money is being spent and that is the largest receipt of money by the federal government. The federal government gets tons of money from that because everybody pays it right up until you meet a cap, which I think is around $114,000. So once you go over that, you stop paying it. Well, that's because you're never going to collect on it if you go over that and pay it. All right. Now, that money is supposed to be your money that's set aside for your retirement. As soon as that money shows up, the government takes it and leaves an IOU. They say we owe that money back, they put it into the general fund, they use it to pay for all sorts of programs, including Social Security, for people to put their money in 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Because their money was taken out just the same. So when we say we owe this money to ourselves, the biggest portion of money we owe to ourselves is money that now is under the term of unfunded liabilities, Two, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. All of the benefits that people are depending on being paid out in their retirement or to support them in time of need. Okay? So if you don't have the money to repay your debt, even though you owe it to yourself, but now you can't pay the Social Security checks, you got a problem. Okay? The counter argument, we'll just print it. (laughs) And you go, do you know Anything about monetary history and what that does. And this was put perfectly years ago on the floor of the House Subcommittee on, on Economics and Finance, where Dr. Ron Paul asked Ben Bernanke, can you guarantee the value of the money that you'll be paying to our seniors in Social Security benefits? And Ben responded, just like a politician, we can guarantee the payments, we can guarantee the payments, And Dr. Paul said, that's that's, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you if you can guarantee the value of the payments. In other words, so the guy's supposed to get $2,500 a month for Social Security. Ben's saying, absolutely, we can guarantee the $2,500. Dr. Paul's saying, can you guarantee there'll be any value in it? And Ben's response was, of course, there's no way we can do that. So if that $2,500 is being paid to our, our elderly in Social Security buys what $250 does today, does it really help them very much? And the answer is no. So that's part of the whole mythology that we don't have to worry about it because we owe most of it to ourselves. The other side is what Rep. Cogburn is saying here when he is saying, hey, there's all of this money we created, but it ain't moving yet. Now, Jack's been telling you that for a long time, haven't I? That it's the velocity of the money. That eventually, when this system unclogs, and that money starts to move, that when it starts to move, initially, it looks like recovery. And we could be starting to see the signs of that. I know that those of you that want to get rid of Obama don't want to admit any little tiny bit of recovery, but I can give you solace. It has nothing to do with Barack Obama. It's in spite of Barack Obama. Remember, I hate Romney, too, for those that are new listeners. I don't like any of them. I don't trust any of them, period. I just have to say that for the people that are so politically idealized, they can't hear criticism of one side without thinking you're making a case for the other. I'm not. I'm just giving you the facts. But unemployment is higher than the official number, but it has come down, period. I mean, that's something we have to understand, that we're starting to see the inklings of a sustained false recovery. Please understand that. I'm not saying things are good. I'm not saying things are wonderful. I'm not saying it's going to be like the dot-com bubble in the 1990s and everybody's going to be making millions again. I'm saying we're seeing something that could look like a sustainable recovery. And it will fool the mainstream idiots into saying, here it is. The day they say it, the day they say we're in full-on recovery, and not just the people trying to get whichever clowns running reelected. But the mainstream econ- economists, the day they buy into it and say this is it, man, we're we're turned, we've not, we're about to turn the corner, we might turn the corner, we think we're turn-. the corner has been turned. The average idiot in this country will go woohoo, we're not, we're, and even though their life doesn't change, right? They'll behave the way they did pre-recession. They'll open up the Mastercard, the Amex, and the Visa, and they'll start spending. They'll start buying new cars. People that have been sitting in their houses because they were trapped underwater. If you get a tiny recovery in the real estate market, we'll be able to get out of their houses. More so, this is something the other thing you gotta understand. Those people that are still in their houses have been paying down equity now for quite a while. If we go back to this thing starting in 2008, that's four more years of paying equity. If you're in a home that you've already been in 10 years at that point, that four years of equity uh, retrieval starts to matter. And if you bought 10 years ago before the big asset bubble, now things have started to kind of come into a little bit more balance, and now I can get out of this house, and even though the market's still a little bit repressed, that's good because I can upgrade. When that kind of shit starts happening, this big clock, and this is where people just you, they want to fight this because they think I'm saying this is good. All I can say is, please, pull your head out of your ass. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying this is mechanically the way the economy functions. When people start to behave that way, this big clog of trillions of dollars of printed money, that you go, it has to cause inflation. Where is it? And it's here and it's there, but it's not heavy. It, right? It's like hitting the plunger on the shitter and you knock it loose and down it goes. Okay? When that starts to move, all of a sudden money starts to go into all these different sectors of the economy. Lending opens up. The Fed's buying all the shitty debt. Why wouldn't it? You can loan money all you want, and Uncle Ben will take a billion dollars off your hands every month until things get better. When that happens, the inflation doesn't just all come in one big lump, right? It doesn't go from 0% inflation or 1% inflation to this 18, 19% inflation that Cogburn's talking about like that. It takes time to ramp up. First, we get two or three or four percent, and this is what's considered healthy inflation, especially after a deleveraging cycle. And then the financial liars get excited because the stock market starts to go, and they start telling everybody, "This is the you know I've been telling you to hold out. See, look." And a lot of the customers come to the financial liars and go, "It's up! It's up! All my money's back! Let's let's get out!" I waited for it. I was waiting for. It. They say, no, no. This is why we stayed the course. Stay. And the banks take the money from the Federal Reserve and they put it in the market. They buy the stock. They drive it up. They short the backside. They pull it out. They put it back in. They put and they create this ramp up over time in the market. And the market looks like it's going. And unemployment comes down another point or two. And everybody goes back to behaving like reckless assholes. And all you've just seen happen when this happens is the people in control know that this guy's telling you the truth. They know this financial endgame is coming. And it's a casino, and they want the tables loaded up one more time. And all of a sudden, the lights go out in the casino, and all the chips are still there when the lights come back on. And everybody goes, let's play. But the dealer's not behind the blackjack table anymore. The waitress isn't bringing you free drinks anymore. There's no guy behind the roulette table anymore. And when you say, well, I'll just take my $20,000 in chips over to the window, you get there, and there's a little guy there, and he doesn't look like the right guy. And he said, I'd like $20,000 in chips, please. And he says, no problem. You go, whoa, I was worried. Huh. And he gives you this $20,000, and it's 20, says $20,000, right? $100 bills or whatever. But the money looks a little bit different. He says, don't worry, it spends the same and when you walk and you leave the casino, you go out and you go to buy something, and It it spends pretty much the same. It's not quite as powerful as it used to be, but it seems okay. And then it just starts to erode from there. This is the game. This is the game. And those of you that get upset with me when I call it a game, I'm not saying it's a game. I'm telling you the people running the show see it as a game. They see it as a game because it's the only thing they can see it as. Because they've lived in a world where they keep score with how much money they have for so long, they don't know any other way to function. I think Cogburn's two-to-five-year timeline is dead on because I kept saying, where's the false recovery? Where's the false recovery? And you guys kept writing me and saying, see, it is a false recovery. This guy says it's false. This guy says it. And I kept going, this is not it. This is not what a false recovery looks like. This is a, a lackluster, not-fall-through-the-floor economy. This is not a recovery. This is not where things look better than they looked before it started. That's a recovery. I think that's coming. And damn, you better make good use of it. And damn, you better not buy into it when it happens. And if it doesn't happen, don't bet on it happening. Let's put it that way. I think it's going to happen, but don't bet on it happening. Be prepared for things to go just like this for five years. Just this lackluster, crappy, sideways, lost decade-style stuff from Japan. Right? Be prepared for that. Be prepared for mid-spring, this thing will just fall apart and it not get legs. And be prepared for, by this spring, it getting legs is starting to surge. Be prepared for all three outcomes. Survivalists don't prepare for one outcome. They prepare for all possible outcomes. Those are, those are your only three that can happen. You either got an economy that looks like it's growing, looks like it's declining, or goes flat. There is no other option. So prepare for those three because you're going to get one of them. Let's take another uh, email. So this next uh, email comes to me from Paul, and this is a video for Jack, uh, Peter Schiff, uh, on YouTube, uh, talking to Obama supporters about a solution to all of these monetary problems. What do you think of the idea of just banning profits? Tell corporations that they just don't need to be making a profit anymore, they just need to give all that money to the people and that will solve the problem. Uh, and those that are just a little less wacky, why don't we just cap corporate profits? I mean, banning them doesn't work. I mean, anybody with, oh, I don't know, an IQ higher than 3 should be able to understand why banning corporate profits wouldn't work. But hey, why not cap them? So uh, instead of me going off on this with my libertarian bent, let's just go ahead and listen to these people first. This is the solution that these people think will work for our problems. And to be fair, the tell Schiff is baiting them, and a few of them don't really take the bait, but some of them don't need any bait, man. They'll saw, suck it down hook, line, and sinker with a bare hook. Here you go, the mind of a Democrat, at least the mind of the Democrat that attends the uh, Democratic National Convention. Van
0: Jones, how are yeah, no, you? Don't. Who are you with? Peter Schiff, Schiff Radio. Uh, I'm, I'm okay. Thank, huh? you so Thank you for your interest. I've got got to go? You got to go you, you do not want to talk to time. me? Some other time. I appreciate you. Everyone, it's Peter Schiff, and I am here in North Carolina at the site of the Democratic National Convention. Not that many people here now, I don't know, maybe they're all out looking for work. Actually, wait a minute. This is the Democratic Convention. They don't want to work. Do <laughs> you think it's fair that corporations make all these profits?
1: I think it's fair that they make that many profits. That's right. we
0: got to ban profits. Do we need corporate profits?
1: Maybe we should have corporate losses.
0: Well, I don't want to go that far. You actually want to force corporations to lose money?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: One issue is corporations have profits, yes. and I want to ban those profits so that the workers can have higher wages mm-hmm. and that the consumers can get lower prices. That is obviously something I would be in favor in. of. Would, would you be in favor of a law that banned corporate profits? Corporate profits? Profits, yes. Yeah, yes, yes. What do you think happens with corporate profits? Um, they keep it, and they get bigger and bigger. I know, and they squeeze the people, and they exploit their customers. They gouge them with high prices. Let's, yeah, let's take away those profits. Exactly. Can they just fire people to make a bigger profit? Absolutely not. Okay, so you want to control who they can hire and it's
1: regulated. Fire. I'm a part of a labor union.
0: Would you support President Obama if he came out in favor of a law to ban corporate profits? Yes. If you're talking just pure profit? Yeah, the stuff that's left over for the greedy capitalists. I I could actually support that. What about putting a cap on corporate profits? I think so. I think a cap is the way to go. That's it's some, something that we looked at with a lot of our corporate giveaways in Louisiana. We couldn't get folks to come to the table to, to outright um, repeal some of those things, but we were able to get them to, to cap them. We,
1: I would be in favor of uh, uh, federal law
0: to limit corporate profits. So limit them. So have a cap on how much profit they can make? Yeah. I don't think one person should be able to make, like, $100 million in one year and just keep all that money. I tend to agree with you. There should be a limit to how much some corporations can make. Listen, absolutely. And individual CEO caps as well. Just caps in general. Caps in general. Well, how about a cap on profits? We just basically I, say...
1: I could agree with that.
0: Would you be in favor of a law banning corporate profits? Of course. My concern is education of, uh, of children and families and working women and single parents. And oh, absolutely. Me too. But would you be willing to pay for that by by banning corporate profits? Uh, I, I'm not going to make an opinion on that because I don't know enough about it. Well, what if Obama wanted to do it? Would you support him? Uh, I will support anything my president wants to do. Anything? Anything. I'll okay, a question. Okay. Okay. Would you support a new federal law to ban corporate profits? They will not lose their health insurance. Give me a second to think about that. I would like to put a cap on it. So a cap, meaning that there's a certain amount of money and they can't make more than that. As we put a cap on corporate profits so that no one corporation can earn too much money. Now I think that's a good idea. I want to get the Democrats to put in their platform an official ban on corporate profits. would, Would you be behind that? Well, I'm not a member of the platform of, of the platform committee, so and I think the, the, fortunately, the time has passed for your for your input to be put in the platform committee in order to get it to be. But, but, on the floor. but would you be in favor of something like that? Well, it's something I'd have to consider. Yeah. Their fair share is a lot, right? A lot. Yeah, they absolutely. can afford it, absolutely. They can afford it. And let's make them pay. Let's do it through the nose. Yeah, through the nose. Absolutely. I'm here. Yes, Obama. <laughs> Obama, exactly. We need to just take the money because the people need that money.
1: The people need that money.
0: Yeah, we need, sure. we need healthcare. We need education. Oh, yeah. We need good jobs. Yeah, the rich cr- people don't need any money; they're rich. Yeah, those corporations want their profits. They want, yes. but I mean, we need the money. The people, we deserve that money. Yes. I mean, we do the hard work. We do all the shopping, right? Uh, that is true. Yeah, have the consumer, there's no profits. That is also true. Yeah, demand you know our, our fair share of the pie. Also true. All right. Well, you're a good Democrat. Thank you. The thing I do know for sure, though, I have to tell you, you happen to be one of the smartest people that I've met since I've been down here.
1: The Peter Schiff Show. Now, I know some of you are considering, like, you're in your car right now and you're thinking about just pulling your car over and – um. Finding a screwdriver out of your toolbox and just jabbing it through your ears so that you never have to hear something so ridiculous ever again. But don't, don't do it. Understand why these people think this way. They think this way because they believe in the dichotomy. So believing in the other side of the dichotomy is not much better. More rational, but not much better. They believe that it really is the rich and the poor. The rich have everything and the poor have nothing. And they believe that they are poor, even though apparently they have enough money to get their ass to the Democratic National Convention. Now, let's just talk a little bit about the problems with this. And you wonder why the mind of the idiot that says, that I'm all for that, can't understand it. Number one. these people love taxes. They think everybody should be paying taxes out the ass. They think that taxes are great, as long as it's not them, and we need more and more taxes, and the wealthy need to pay more in taxes. Well, corporate income taxes at the federal level were $181 billion last year. Now, you only pay taxes on income. Now, let me think about something. Corporate taxes were only $181 billion. How is that possible? How is that But Corporations make more money than people. People, individuals, paid um, about a trillion, $1.09 trillion in taxes in 2011. Corporations only paid uh, $181 billion. Now, that would seem like corporations aren't paying their fair share. But there's a funny thing about corporations. They have these things called shareholders. And the shareholders receive the profit through a thing called a freaking dividend. That dividend becomes income, and that income is part of that one trillion dollars in individual income taxes the federal government receives. Hmm. So <laughs> if the corporation doesn't make a profit, it doesn't pay a profit to its shareholders, so they don't pay the income tax. So you're looking at you know a half trillion dollar more hit in, in taxes. Well, that'll be fine because the people will have the money. No, people will pay the tax on the money if they have the money. And the reality is that corporations try to make their profit number as low as possible. Specifically, their profit after paying, a, 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 you know, paying out the income to shareholders. Now, there is double taxation because it, it's taxed at two layers uh, before it's paid out uh, as a dividend. But there are ways that corporations massage things to prevent that. But the point is that sooner or later, somebody pays the taxes on the money. The other side of this... The states, in fact, most states, not all states, but most states have a fairly significant corporate tax rate. And they get a huge percentage of their revenue through taxing corporations. So I'd like to ask one of these geniuses if we got rid of all corporate profits, then you can forget about all the other, there's just a litany of problems, isn't there? But just forget about that. Now, what happens to all those taxes that used to be paid? Do you think that the people that get the new money should pay it? And they'll say, no, I shouldn't pay it. Well, somebody's got to pay if we're going to keep all of these wonderful programs you want going. Well, then there's other things. Like when I run, you know, let's say Jack Inc., and Jack Inc. makes $50 million in profit after we pay out everything, after we pay our shareholders, after we pay everything, uh, and we have $50 million in new funding. What do we do with it? Do you think that I, like, have, like, let you know, dude, send somebody to the bank. And get us $50 million in $100 bills. Put it in the conference room, in a big pile. And every day, the board and I will come in there and roll around in our money. No. Uh, we take it, some of it might get taken as, as compensation. And then we pay taxes on it. Or, more likely, we use the money for research and development, hiring new people, expanding our business, which is the creation of jobs that these of people are so, supposedly so concerned with. But you just get a look into the mind of these people and you wonder how poor must the education of an individual be to think that it's a viable solution in any way to um, to ban corporate profits. Now, let's talk about capping corporate profits. They are capped. They are capped. It's called income tax. It's called corporate taxes. It's called corporate taxes at the federal and the state layer. That caps. How does that cap income? Same way it caps your income. The more you make, the more they take. It is absolutely impossible for people to attain the wealth that they would have been able to attain without all the burdens of taxes. Corporations are forced into capping their profits. In fact, many corporations end up with so much litany of things they have to do at a certain size that once they get to a certain size and they want to do something new... They don't expand their company. They create a sub-corporation. They create a holding corporation. They put their existing corporation under that holding corporation. And then they put that that other corporation out as a lateral corporation, a sister corporation of the original. And people go, that's complicated in loopholes. It's not complicated. I could do it in 15 minutes with some forms. It's easy to do. Because they wrote the system, folks. It's the way it's going to be. If you want to deal with it, you need to learn to play the game the way that they do. You're not going to ban corporate freaking profits, and God, what a disaster that would be. But you just wonder, and if you watch the video, you get a whole new appreciation for the idiocy there. Here's an email from um, someone that is really interesting. This is from Dr. Thumbs on the forum. Jack, not so much a question, but an observation of the loss of liberty from a different perspective. I'm a coin collector. And while preparing to teach a merit badge class on the subject for scouts, something occurred to me. If the U.S. was founded on one word, that word would be liberty. It is sad how much muck the meaning of the word has lost in today's modern lexicon. But as a symbol of our coinage, liberty is also missing. From 1793 to uh, 1909, the only person on any U.S. coin has been a female representation of Liberty. The Flying Eagle scent was a brief deviation. After some infighting and debate, the Lincoln scent was issued in 1909, denoting depicting the first real person. In 1913, Liberty was changed from her traditional female figure to that of a Native American, and was replaced with Jefferson in 1938. Liberty continued to fall quarter in 1932, the dime in 1946, the half dollar in 1948, and finally the dollar in 1971. It had not been issued regularly since 1935. Again, when he says the dollar, he's not talking about bills, he's talking about coins. Now, things don't line up perfectly, and I by no means offer this as evidence of any larger conspiracy, However, the trends of removing liberty from our coinage seem to flow with the trends of the removal of liberty from our society. Perhaps it's a shift in values, or perhaps I'm assigning meaning to the meaningless. The Federal Reserve found it near the time the Lincoln sent the change in liberty on the nickel for a start. But the irony that liberty still reigns on U.S. bullion coins, the silver and gold eagles both display liberty, Somewhat a symbol of our liberty, of our community. Thank you, Dr. Thumbs. Um, actually, I think it's, I don't think it's assigning meaning to the meaningless. I think that you hit it when you said, um, a shift in values. I think that in 1860, 1870, 1880, that if somebody wanted to put Abraham Lincoln or George Washington on, uh, you know, a quarter or a penny, that people would have said what the hell are you talking about these are presidents we're not going to pay them homage like some kind of you know deity or something like that our, our 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 money has liberty on it because that's what our nation is about it's not about a person it's not about a man it's not about anything other than freedom and i think the bigger issue today is how many people that consider themselves liberty loving freedom loving Americans would get upset if somebody came around today and said, "You know what we should do? We should take all these presidents, all these founders off the money, and go back to uh, a, a clear representation of anonymous liberty. I think a lot of people say this was a, this is a conspiracy, but see, this is how things get twisted, isn't it It's a different way to look at things, isn't it? I mean, when you would first hear that, they want to take George Washington off of the quarter, they want to take you know Jefferson off of the nickel. Lincoln off of the penny. Oh, how horrible! But is that really what the nation's about? Is the is the nation about Lincoln and Jefferson, you know, or is the nation about the Constitution and liberty? And those are men who did good and bad things for the nation. Did their best for the nation with what they had at their current time. It's interesting, and I'm not saying we should change the money back. I don't think it'll matter soon. The money's going to change somehow, and it ain't going to be good. But I think it's an interesting observation, and Dr. Thumbs, I thank you for pointing it out. And maybe we should think about the fact that until 1909, it never happened and what that really means. All right, uh, what I want to finish up with is an article from the Daily Mail that was sent to me by Ben Falk of Whole System Design. And I want to try to help people understand something here, and that is that you can think that man-made global warming due to CO2 is nonsense and still have plenty of reasons to oppose The exploitation of certain fossil fuel resources, specifically in the way that they're being done. This is what Ben said. What will we tell our kids, Jack, beyond we effed up big, sorry. And it doesn't say effed, it says the word. Uh, And I think that if you look at the pictures in this article, you, you, you can't help but feel the same way. And it's about the tar sands in... Uh, Alberta, Canada, and what's being done here. I'm going to read the article to you. These incredible pictures show the bleak landscape of butman sand clay recre- created by the frantic pursuit of 173 billion barrels of untouched oil. The tar sands in Alberta, Canada, are the world's third-largest oil reserve. But the lush green forest once blanketed an area. They're larger than England. The region where the blackened earth now stands have been dubbed as the most destructive industrial project on earth by shocked environmentalists. Um, Let me get into more of the article here. The tar sands cover 141,000 square kilometers of Alberta. 20% of this has 174 billion recoverable barrels of oil close, close enough to the surface to be strip mined. This is done by removing the forest and the peaty soil beneath before the gas-heated water is then forced through the tar sands to melt and separate bitumen from the sand and clay. It takes four barrels of water to retrieve one barrel of oil, creating large tailing ponds of dirty water that cover vast expanses. Lawyer and environmentalist Polly Higgins said, runaway climate change becomes almost inevitable if the tar sands continue. The tar sands should be classified as an active ecocide and rendered illegal under international law. This is, in effect, a crime against humanity. But others argue the tar sands are good news, bringing jobs and wealth into a remote northern region. A dump truck driver can make an astonishing 125,000 pounds a year. That's about $200,000 in, in U.S. dollars, uh, creating towns that defy the recession, is, is such as Fort McCroy. People flock to live there from around the world in scenes akin to the gold rush as they look to their fortune from oil. So many are employed by the industry that workers are often housed in remote camps of up to 10,000 people. Some of these have their own postcode. But local doctors in Alberta are becoming concerned about the side effects of industrial-scale output on residents' health. See, and this is, this is my, my issue with the climate change people. First of all, let me say that on some levels they could be right because of the methane being probably vented from this atrocity. There could be some effect. But if you look at the pictures of what's being done here, you don't need climate change to convince anybody that this is an atrocity. I'm looking at a picture right now of thousands and thousands and thousands of trees turned into timber. It It looks like rows of matchsticks because the scale is so put off. Um, these are boreal forests. These are virgin forests. And this isn't taking a drill and drilling a hole in the ground and pumping oil out. This is, well, we'll just clear out a square mile of forest, just cut it to the ground and sell off the timber and scrape off the soil and start strip mining it. And when I look at these pictures, I think to myself, this reminds me of Pennsylvania. As I look at rows and rows of uke trucks headed out carrying this stuff and the the way this stuff is mined and these gaping scars being put into the land, and I think, what the hell are we doing? What the hell are we doing as a people? And I know some people are really shocked right now because, you know, there's people on both sides of this debate that do not understand what I've been trying to say very clearly for four and a half years. I'm not for destroying the planet just because I don't believe that the air I go is not warming it, okay? This is an atrocity that we're doing here. And the story is, when this is all over, they put everything back the way that it was. First of all, you can't put it back the way that it was. I'm sorry. There's no way to put it back the way that it was. Uh, You can't replace old-growth forest with some pine trees and call it good. You, You really can't. And the amount of water that's being contaminated is an atrocity. And if you look at what this looks like, what it really makes me think of are the slush dams and the strip mines of Pennsylvania that I grew up around. And I told Ben, the only solace I can offer you is that they probably will do a better job of reclamation in Alberta. They probably will. And even the lands in Pennsylvania, for the most part, healed. But I've been kicking around an idea, an idea to make people understand that we can be concerned about the environment and we don't have to bring a politically divisive issue into it to get people to understand. And that is I've been thinking about going home to visit my father in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and taking my camera with me, and going out to all of these slush dams where the coal was mined and the coal slush was dumped, creating black deserts, scars on the landscape. Some of them have been there since the 1930s and earlier. And when you look at these things, it's a vast lake. That's why they call them dams, because they look like dams. They're not, there's no dam structure. It's just you come through and all the forest has regrown wherever it could and all of a sudden you get to this spot and it might be an acre, it might be 20 acres, it might be more and it's just black. It's It looks like black sand except it's really, really coarse. And if you pick it up, your hands turn black. If you get in your clothes, throw that shit away. And 1930, some of these things have been sitting there from This is 2012, and in most of them, there isn't a speck, a speck of vegetation in these seas of black. And because they were done in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, the people that did it are dead. They're dead. They're gone. Can't find them. Can't do anything about it. Technically, Reading Company still owns most of these lands through their surrogates. All these little, these little sub corporations and subs of subs of sub corporations that were created all through the mining, you know, mecca of the the twenties, the thirties, the forties, fifties, and sixties. But then those corporations just were kind of just left to languish and become defunct and now that corporation doesn't exist anymore and Reading doesn't want the land anymore, it's raped and they're not really the owner of the land so you can't really go after them. Charlie Martin Coal Company owned it and sold it to Castle Coal Company. These are real names, by the way, and Castle Company Coal Company went out of business in 1965 but the land can't be used by anybody else because technically it's under private ownership yet there's no one alive to go after for the damage that's done. So what I'm going to sell you Canadians is, I don't think for one minute that this is going to stop. I'm for building the Keystone Pipeline, because I think you guys are going to do this whether we use the oil or not. And either you can sell the oil to us, and we can use it to hopefully do something intelligent with, to build sustainable infrastructure with, or you're going to sell it to other nations that will do that with it. Can't stop it. Don't like it, don't want it, but I know I can't stop it. You make damn sure they do what they say they're going to do as far as rec- reclamation. You make damn sure they don't get one square foot that they're able to escape by with. You make damn sure that they meet their promises. It's the only thing you probably can do now. I, I'd shut it down. I really would. I think it's a disaster. And I, I don't think, I'm not being close-minded, but I don't think anybody could change my mind. I don't think there's anything you could show me that would prove to me that you really can fix this after you've destroyed it. And I want the environmental crowd out there that listens to this show to understand I'm not against you. Just because I don't believe with your political bullshit about taxing carbon. And here's the thing. Taxing carbon won't fix this. Go look at the pictures today. Go look at it. Forget climate change. Forget it. Just let it go. Look at it. Do you need anything more to convince people that this is a mistake? That we need to start finding a new way to produce our energy? Do you need anything more? If you don't, if you think I'm overreacting, do me a favor. Pause the recording, rewind it back to where I started this section, go look up the article, and scroll through the pictures while I'm talking. And tell me it's okay. Tell me it'll all just be fine. And let me tell you something about this. There's only one reason it's happening. It's so far north into such a remote area that nobody lives there for it to be in their backyard. I heard Glenn Beck say today on the radio on the way in, you want to drill for oil in my backyard, you can drill for oil in my living room if it helps out. I don't think so. I get the point he was trying to make, but I don't think so. I'd like to ask him what he thinks of these pictures. If he thinks this is okay, I really would. I'd like to get a response. And I can take or leave Glenn on different days. But if anybody tells me this is okay, I don't really have much use for him. One of the pictures I want you to look at, <laughs> you won't even recognize it until you read the subtitles Because it looks small. It's not small. It's mountainous. You have to look at the buildings and the roads around it to get an understanding of scale. But it looks like a giant, huge block of yellow cake. Do you know what that is? It's sulfur. It's a byproduct. Mine coal, you get it. You mine oil, you get it. It's a byproduct. See, the tar sands are pretty much oil that probably would have become coal someday. They just didn't get there. This is oil that's not clean oil, if there is such a thing. It's not like sweet Texas crude. It's very disgusting, nasty oil with a ton of sulfur in it. This is a byproduct. I've said this before, but I want you to really understand it. I'm not just making this shit up to promote an agenda. I grew up in the coal region of Pennsylvania with a stream that ran between Pottsville and Minersville, that was orange. It was orange. The rocks were orange slime, red-orange slime. And if you went to a place where there was like a a weir or an overflow or anything like that where the water kind of overflowed and and off-gassed, you you felt like you were going to puke from the odor, the stench. And it was a mix of decomposed matter because anything that fell in there died and the sulfur. And sulfur oxidizes. That's why instead of yellow, it was orange, rusted, which sucked the oxygen from this creek. My grandfather used to tell me that when the native trout would would swim up that stream in the fall to the spawn, they looked like a salmon run. There were trout, and they 18, 20-inch trout. You could almost walk across them at certain places. This was during the Depression, before the mining really kicked in in that area. And that nobody, nobody could think of even being hungry just from what you could take out of that one stream. That there was only 10% of the population that uh, there is there today. Because of the Depression, if people went to the cities, and the people that stayed behind it was one of their biggest food sources. I didn't believe them. I thought it was crazy. I mean, this is a, a creek. If you put a carp in it, it'll float in 15 seconds. This is what sulfur does. An unthought-of byproduct. And there was nowhere near this much sulfur. So you folks in Alberta, I'd want to know what's going to happen. What are they going to do with all this sulfur? You can't just put it back. If that's the plan, it won't work. See, when it's when it's caught up with the tar sands, it's bound up. It's bound up. And when you separate it, it's free. It becomes available and it leaches. So what are they going to do with this? I mean, I know you can use sulfur for a few industrial processes, but this is, I think, more sulfur than the entire world needs. So you guys that are environmentalists, you want to make a case to people to change their habits, change their behaviors, support alternative energy, shut up about climate change. Show them this. Show them what we're doing. Show them what the, what the results of this mentality are. Maybe they'll listen to you. I'd listen to you. We have real problems in our world today with resources, resource utilization, and energy. Real problems. And it's going to take guts and courage and determination to get through them and to do something to fix these problems. And we can. But we can't do it as a divided people. If we do it as divided people, all we get is more pollution, more expensive energy, and the people making the money make more energy. And that's what cap and trade will give you. Cap and trade will create a value of inaction. For not doing something, you'll get value. It'll create a new fiat currency. It's basically the carbon credit is a currency. That's why the banks want it. That's why the oil companies want it. The oil companies are not really opposed to cap and trade. There's a little feigned resistance. It's not real. It's not real. These companies have billions of dollars. If they really wanted to la- launch a counter campaign, they could do it. They haven't. People say Jack Spirit goes a shill for the oil-, oil companies. Really? Do I sound like one today? Re- and really, I'm like the, the, the trillion dollar industry. I'm I'm what they can afford. This is this is what they can do? Put up people like me? Are you serious? There's a better future waiting for us if we'll do the work. It won't come easy. And a divided people will not sacrifice anything. Not even what they know they should. It only happens with the United People. You guys on the environmental bandwagon? You want a United People? Start talking about the things that nobody can disagree with. Look at this article. Use it. I wish the word climate change didn't even appear in it. I really do. Even though I'll call, there's climate change here. You cut down boreal forest, you're gonna get climate change, at least for the region. But why divide? Unite people. Bring them together. Look at this crap. I really hope some of you are looking at this while I'm talking. Cause it, it'll change, this is one of these times where I wish I was doing a video. It'll change everything when you can actually see what's going on, what's being done. You might wonder why I want to close on something like this. I want us all to realize the damage that we're doing to our planet is a problem. I want all the people that cheer whenever I say that global warming is bullshit to understand that doesn't abdicate our responsibilities to take care of the environment and our planet. I want you to meet the other side halfway. I want us to work solar, wind. And I yes, I want us to use oil and natural gas and coal where we have to. But I want to start doing intelligent things with it. Building permanent infrastructure. Building permanent solutions. Or at least building 200-year solutions with this cheap energy. To give us time to bridge the technological gap. And those that say it can't be done are full of shit. They're the same people that said the Wright brothers would never make an airplane. They're the same people that said we would never put a rocket in outer space. They're the same people that never said that we would put a man on the moon, and if you don't think we really landed on the moon, I can't help you because your brain is damaged. But they're the same people that said, a million times they said what couldn't be done. The economy will crash, we'll rebuild it. Everything will fall apart. We'll put it back together. We're not going to have little louse on the prairie, folks. We're not. But I sure wish we could bring some of the value of the agrarian lifestyle into the 21st and 22nd century. I think there's a place to holistically blend these things. It's up to us. You want to do it, you're going to have to get everybody on board. Everybody. Or at least 80% this environmentalism movement of today I hope you understand how much you've been damaged by this politically divisive issue and this is what I would challenge anybody that says that you care about the environment today that really says you care about the environment go find 10 cases that can be made to people that don't involve the word climate 10 learn them and use them you just might get somewhere somewhere I'd like to go with you and with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food
0: these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do.